Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Another year, another record-setting number of homicides in Portland. What's driving the violence and what can we do about it? I'm Andrew Thien, and this is Beat Check with the Oregonian. Up next, we've got reporter Maxine Bernstein. We'll talk about the lives lost, what we know about the factors at play, and much more. Max, thanks for coming back on the show. Thanks for having me, Andrew. So we just saw another terrible year in Portland in terms of gun violence and homicides overall. What's going on when you're talking to people, you know, in these neighborhoods and in the police bureau uh, about, you know, this is two years of really dramatic uh, increases in homicides in Portland? I think there's great frustration among uh, community members uh, who are directly impacted um, and as well as city officials and police who are and have been trying to make a dent but yet the numbers um, are are continuing and, and lives are continuing to be lost. So that I just sense there's tremendous frustration and an effort to, to try to address it, but a lot of um, what had been in place in years past was dismantled. And it seems like there's a patchwork effort to bring back parts of that but um, so far, it hasn't uh, made a difference. Yeah, we'll get into some of those efforts a little bit later in our conversation here. But I just want to, you know, as someone who's covered um, cops and courts and um, just this city in general for decades, I mean, what do you think when you see we crested 100 homicides in Portland? Um, that is just kind of hard to wrap your head around. Yeah, it's it's outrageous. Um, I'm a resident of the city, uh, and um, you know, we're the last two years uh, we've experienced more than three times what the city uh, recorded in homicides over the last at least two three decades, where it averaged between twenty five to thirty. So it was a tremendous jump. I mean, it didn't just happen in Portland. I mean, nationally homicides um, and the murder rate uh, increased substantially uh, during the pandemic. Um, But a lot of other large cities in the last year have um, noticed a drop-off last in 2022, about 60% of major cities in the U.S. saw a drop-off in the murders and Portland bucked that trend and the hit another record-breaking year. Yeah. Um, Well, let's talk about some of the people who 
lost their wives last year, um, which uh, you chronicled in in a you know cataloging all of these lives. Um, could you talk tell us about um, one of those victims to start? Uh, P.J. Baden Jr. Who was he, and and how did he die? Yeah, um, it's his full name was Parnell, but he went by P.J. Badan. He was 18. He um, grew up, was born in Portland. He was the oldest of three brothers, uh, really uh, described as protector of his younger brothers who are only eight and 14. And he he was at Embassy Suites Hotel near the airport, and he was attending his cousin's 17th birthday party. It was a sleepover. Uh, They had one or two hotel rooms, and around... 9.30, um, several people, one to three people uh, wearing masks burst into the hotel room and, Mm -hmm. you know, told some people to leave and and, um, targeted Badan and and shot him multiple times. He um, was pronounced dead at the scene. It was really troubling to, um, you know, speak to and, and meet his mom who is just uh, trying to handle the loss of her oldest son. Um, She got a call that night uh, that there had been a shooting at the hotel and raced over there. And there's, you know, dozens of police. She raced into up the elevator, got to the third floor where, where he was. And there were, you know, tried to get past all these officers and just, you know, saw her son's legs and just didn't want to believe it was him. Um, she's come to court. There was a, an arrest of, um, of one person in the, uh, who's alleged uh, to have been involved in the killing, but uh, they suspect there's at least one or two others involved. And, you know, after court, she met personally with the DA handling the case and then um, left and went to her car and she just sat in her car and, and just, you know, was sobbing. And, and I spoke to her afterwards. Um, she said the DA didn't have more information for them about the others who were involved. Um, and she just had really strong words um, about how the city has handled this. Um, she said, nobody, gets completely tired of it until it happens to their family. As a city, we just sit back and continue to watch this happen. She said, we've let it continue to happen. We're reacting instead of preventing. And I, and I thought that was um, really powerful and, and somewhat true. Yeah. And PJ's death, uh, unfortunately, he's indicative of, you know, a, a troubling trend we've seen in Portland in the last two years, right? He, he younger than 20 years old. And, and also, you know, he's a black man, a black teenager. More than half of the people um, killed were people of color and 47% were black. What other stories from last year in terms of these um, deadly uh, incidents stick with you? Well, there are a lot. There was the um, random attack of an 82 year old man who was just at a waiting at a TriMet bus stop near PSU, Portland State University, mm-hmm. around 8 30 p.m. at night. And, and uh, a man is accused of 
attacking him, throwing him into the street and then stomping and kicking him in an unprovoked assault. Um, He was in a coma for a week and then uh, passed away. Uh, The man who's accused uh, has a history of mental illness. Uh, He was actually on probation at the time from a prior year's uh, assault of an officer because of the unprovoked nature of that, that, that stuck with me. The other was uh, um, a case involving two twin brothers and yeah. one was accused of fatally shooting his twin. They were 26 years old. Uh, I was at his bail hearing and uh, they played a video because they caught the uh, shooting on video surveillance outside of Howard Johnson's. They were both in a car, pulled up to the front of the Howard Johnson's, got out, apparently had some dispute. One brother pushed, you know, just pushed the other. And uh, in response, one brother's accused of pulling out a gun and firing a shot. The brother falls and crawls to the front of the, into the lobby of the Howard Johnson's and the accused shooter gets in the car and drives off. Mm. Um, And uh, leaving the twin brother uh, who bled out in the lobby and the accused apparently drove off, parked about 10 minutes away and then walks back to the scene and asks the detectives as as if he had nothing to do with it, um, what had happened. Uh, so that just watching that and watching him watch the video and, yeah. and with no obvious expression stuck with me. Yeah. Um, then there was, you know, there was a 36 year old woman, Rachel Abraham, who was stabbed to death in her home by uh, uh, her ex-boyfriend, and she had done everything to protect herself. Uh, There were all these red flags. He had uh, threatened to kill her in the past. She got a restraining order, a protective order, um, and he was was arrested for violating that order. A judge declined to lower his bail, but yet the uh, Portland Freedom Fund posted his bail, and a week later, he killed her. Um, those are, you know, just disturbing. Yeah, and there's also the Normandale Park um, shooting, which I had um, lost track of that that occurred last year, where a, um, a six-year-old woman was, was shot and killed in what appeared to be pretty much a random attack, right? I mean, it was tied to a protest, but um, just a... Uh, another event that really stuck in the city's consciousness. So, I mean, this is all pretty depressing stuff, Max. Um, and like you mentioned, uh, PJ Badon's mother saying that, you know, the, the feeling that there isn't being enough done here. So, you know, what has the city done to try to address the gun violence we've seen over the last two years? Because from an outsider's perspective, it seems like the city is either powerless or ineffective or both. Sure. Um, so the city has tried to uh, reinstate a team of officers dedicated to trying to interdict this violence and, and particularly 
the gun violence. It's called the Focused Intervention Team. They were uh, put on the street at the start of 2022, a team of 12 officers and two sergeants um, with a community oversight group. This followed the city's previous um, elimination of the gun violence reduction team, which was uh, followed a prior gang enforcement team. There were um, concerns that uh, the prior uh, iterations of gun violence gang enforcement was Mm -hmm. disproportionately stopping uh, young black men. And uh, so they tried to bring back a team of officers with community oversight and put them on the streets uh, at the start of the year. But they, um, I rode with several officers from the team recently and, you know, they're committed to, to making a difference, but they themselves recognize that the, the challenge is much greater than they anticipated, that um, they're basically facing this fire hose of shootings and they're trying to respond and make, uh, investigate and make meaningful arrests, uh, but it's, um, it's much larger than they can handle. Um, so that was one, um, avenue. And then the other is the city last summer, the mayor declared a state of emergency and, um, the city allotted about 2.7 million to fund additional, um, street level outreach programs. Um, and that was awarded to 18 to 20 groups that, in the past hadn't historically been funded by the city. Uh, but a lot of the funding lasted for 90 days. Um, and then the groups were told they would have to reapply if they wanted continued funding. Okay. And what do we know about the effectiveness of those groups? Well, the city hired a outside consulting group to help these groups apply for the money because they never had done so in the past and try to track and report back what they had done. But um, I don't think it was as effective as the city uh, would have liked and are hoping to provide more guidance to these groups. Um, But uh, those who are involved in the work uh, say that there has to be consistent, sustained funding Otherwise, they won't be able to establish the relationships they need to on the street with those who are committing uh, these shootings and trying to intervene and make a difference. Um, It can't be just, you know, every 90 days. This has to be sustained long-term support. You mentioned earlier the focused intervention team, which you spent some time with, um, and... um, so this is a this is a team that you know has been involved in police in shootings itself, right? Um, during the past year, there's something like seven members on leave. There were at different parts of the year last year. The focus intervention team. There were officers who were involved in three separate shootings. In one shooting, there were four different officers of the team who were involved in on leave at one time, which took a third of the 
the unit off the street, which is challenging, um, uh, to say the least. So yeah, they, they were, uh, one of, there was, it was one fatal shooting and one non-fatal shooting. And the third was a shooting where no one was hit, but shots were fired. Um, so when these teams, uh, you know, obviously are not at full strength, I, I would imagine they're not able to do their job as effectively. I think they're, they're just, uh, you know, one officer described it. We're playing catch up. First of all, a lot of them are newer officers. I mean, they have, you know, a handful of years on the job. A lot of the more veteran officers who, who made a career of working this type of, uh, crime and shootings and gang violence, um, have retired. Um, and so they, are starting. They've got to build relationships. They've got to build ties with the community to try to get information. A lot of the gang shootings, people are reluctant to talk. So um, they're, and they said they have no one, they, they have few people to learn from because many of the veteran officers aren't on this team. Uh, they've either retired or are working elsewhere. So, um, you know, I think they're all hardworking and they're committed and they really want to make a difference. Um, but they themselves recognize it, it's going to take some time. Um, one thing that struck me from your reporting is that uh, downtown, the old town, Chinatown neighborhood, um, was one of the deadliest neighborhoods in the city last year, right? Yes, that's correct. There, there were nine homicides in Old Town, and in one 24-hour period, there were two fatal stabbings just within blocks of each other. I had spoken to a, a restaurant restaurant worker who, you know, was delayed to work because her bus couldn't get past one of the stabbing scenes, and when she left work, she couldn't get the bus because there was another stabbing scene just half a block away from the restaurant. It was, it was disturbing. So, um, according to your reporting, the police bureau started tracking homelessness related homicides for the first time last year and estimated that roughly a third of the slayings involved people experiencing homelessness in 2022, either as victims or perpetrators. Um, I mean, that, that seems to be an alarming increase, um, or maybe that it, it, do we have a sense of whether that was the case in past years, or is this a you know an increase that we've seen? I think that's been um, it's growing the last two years at least, um, with more people living on the streets. Um, police were saying that um, in the past, uh, those experiencing homelessness may have gotten into disputes, and they. Um, it might have been with knives or beatings, but now they're seeing those disputes are involving guns and leading to shootings. Um, and a lot, a number of the people living on the streets are also um, suffering from mental illness. And um, there's a segment also addicted to drugs. So drugs um, and guns um, are leading to uh, disputes and shootings and homicides. 
So we've kind of mentioned various trends here, the homelessness situation that we just described, as well as younger people who have been shot or wounded. But I mean, is there a sense that gang violence, you mentioned gang violence as well, is that also driving this? Um, Or are we still, like you said, playing catch up and police don't even know that gang violence is uh, one of the major factors? No, I think police, uh, they can't save uh, for whatever reasons. They can't, they describe it as group dynamic violence. But yeah, there's been gang-related retaliatory shootings and shootings among the homeless population that seem to be the two largest drivers of our homicide in Portland. Um, And as well as that, there's domestic violence and drug disputes and then just really um, crazy disputes over social media slights. I mean, social media is playing a big role um, among the younger people and uh, even just photos that are put up to antagonize others, um, I'm hearing, are leading to shootings. And um, in recent weeks, obviously, we've seen some um, shootings near or connected to Portland public high schools, right? Yeah, there were five um, five students who've been wounded from gunfire uh, as a result of shootings outside three high schools, Jefferson, Cleveland, and Franklin High School, um, after the two shootings outside Jefferson around dismissal time, the principals of Jefferson asked for an officer to be present. And so police had a North Precinct officer at Jefferson High School from uh, about Thanksgiving time through winter break. Hmm. And then um, there was a shooting outside uh, Cleveland High School where a uh, student was wounded and uh, then outside Franklin High School during a basketball tournament, but it was in the parking lot. And um, police arrested a 15-year-old boy or took a 15-year-old boy into custody on a gun charge, but didn't say whether that teen was involved in the shooting or not. But there were uh, two officers at the basketball tournament um, mm-hmm. when that shooting occurred outside. So just taking stock of all of this, Max, um, you know, what uh, what can the city do that it isn't doing um, to try to intervene here? Um, I know you, you talk to city leaders about uh, Tampa and Oakland specifically, right, of how they're trying to target gun violence there? Yeah, there are officers and uh, the the prior head of the city's Office of Violence Prevention, they went to um, Oakland and some went to Tampa and were uh, and have been trying to encourage the city and the mayor's office to support a move to this focused deterrence, it's kind of operation ceasefire model, which, you know, did exist in Portland some 20 years ago, um, where all everyone at the table, the police, probation, 
school officials, juvenile workers, um, judges, outreach workers, community mm-hmm. leaders would all uh, have these call-in meetings with people who are suspected of uh, being most involved in the violence or most at risk and send the message that, um, you know, the community needs this violence to stop. The communities most affected want this violence to stop, that uh, they don't want you, they don't want you to be at risk of getting harmed and want you to stay safe and uh, will provide you with what you might need in terms of protection or um, support uh, uh, to food, shelter, et cetera, um, but also send the, the, the message that if the violence continues, that um, all these authorities are going to work collectively to not only um, prosecute those involved uh, in the shootings, but also we'll be looking at what other crimes they may be involved in um, because, you know, David Kennedy, who's sort of the guru of this, of this um, model and method Mm -hmm. and helped Portland years ago, put it in place, said that, you know, the most of the people who are involved in the shootings generally are involved in other crimes as well, whether it's drug dealing or um, could be sex trafficking, et cetera. But it's, it's, um, Plus, there needs to be uh, strong relationships between the community and police. That kind of um, that definitely faltered after the uh, George Floyd murder in May of 2020. Uh, there was a huge um, distrust of police, and um, police can't do this alone. Uh, they need the community to be active with them, and uh, the other. Um, message that I got from talking to people was there has to be consistent, sustained support for not just uh, the police who are out on the streets, but for the community, these outreach workers, uh, what the city calls these credible messengers who are trying to intervene in these kids or young people's lives and trying to set them on the right path. That sounds like there's a lot of work to be done. (laughs) I was at I was at a recent breakfast where the sheriff, uh, the chief, and the DA all spoke, and you know they all they spoke about like the DA spoke about oh we're going to bring in neighborhood uh, district attorneys and put them in the neighborhoods and you know that was in place years ago but it it, it was discontinued and and there was a call for you know just basic traffic enforcement and you know. Uh, the police bureau's traffic division was dismantled and they were calling for the state police to come and assist and do traffic enforcement. So some of the basics, uh, basic public safety efforts they're trying to get back to. Um, and they, you know, until they can do that, uh, this is bad. This is <laughs> Yeah, and I, I hasten to bring this up, but this has been mentioned in the newsroom um, a bit this week. We're talking on Friday, but you know, it's been a relatively quiet period in terms of um, we haven't had a deadly incident um, for nearly a month. Um, but as before, we were recording, we were talking about this, and that might not be indicative of the full picture, right? 
Well, police are just, uh, they're aware of it. It's, they're cautiously optimistic. They don't, they, they are, they don't know, you know, they can't pinpoint a reason. They say usually they do see a slowdown in shootings, violence during the cooler, rainier months, uh, in Portland. So that could be a part of it. They're knocking on wood every time someone mentions it, but uh, I asked for, you know, the total number of shootings and they said um, so far this year, 13 people have been injured. And at this mm. time last year, 10 people were injured in shootings. Um, so though there, though there, there's been this, um, I think it's 22 days without a shooting. The last time Portland saw that uh, was in the late summer of 2021. Well, Max, before I let you go, I mean, what are kind of the major takeaways that you have or that you think readers or listeners should have? I mean, obviously you are um, privy to all sides of this, talking to these families that have just been devastated and talking to people in the neighborhoods and and the law enforcement um, side of the equation too. What are your takeaways? Um, it was something David Kennedy told me. He's the professor at John Jay College of Criminal Justice in New York. And he said, if the city doesn't system- systematically understand and engage with the small world of groups and group dynamics that drive homicide and gun violence, it will not be effective. That's one thing. The other thing, um, community and outreach workers who've been around for decades said, you know, the last time that they remember when the city worked as a cohesive group with the community, with schools, with probation, with outreach uh, leaders was back when Vera Katz was mayor. And she went all in. She sat at the table every two weeks and led uh, a real community effort to address the problems at hand. And it was beyond just, you know, declaring a state of emergency and providing some funding. It was getting everyone together to address the, the hot spots or the problem of the week. Um, and I don't see that happening. And I think it needs to happen. And it needs someone who's, uh, who's vocal and, uh, you know, not afraid to to discuss what's going on and say it's not okay and do something about it. Um, you know, I think there's a lot of efforts all throughout the city, but it's, uh, you know, one community member uh, said it seems like everyone's working in their own silos. Um, and until they come together and really uh, try to combine efforts and work collectively, um, you know, I, I don't, I, I would hope that we have a better year this year. Um, and I hope that, you know, I think there's efforts to, to come towards that, uh, but I haven't seen it yet. Well, um, we all, I think, hope that it's a better year this year. And um, thanks for all of your reporting on this um, grim topic, but it's an important one. And thanks for coming on to talk about it. Thank you. 
Thanks for listening to Beat Check with the Oregonian. I'll share links in the episode notes to some of Max's stories, including the year-end look at the overall violence in Portland. If you like this show, give us a five-star rating and review in Apple Podcasts. That's how people find it. Or tell a friend, share the word, share the show. The best way to support our journalism and journalism like Max Bernstein's is with a subscription to Oregon Live. You can do that at OregonLive.com slash pod support. Until next time.